the song, Take My Life and Let It Be, um, it's very apropos for our lesson today. I want to start with this prayer. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. Take our hearts and set them on fire with the love of Jesus Christ. Amen. We are looking at Acts 19. And at first it's like, ah, oh, a riot? What are we going to do with a riot? We got riots. Aren't you tired of riots? TV, riots, riots. <clears throat> but it's the word of God where this riot is written about by Luke. And it's just incredible now after studying it that it's even in here at this time and what it means. So step back a little bit from the text and I want us to see the world in general from the beginning of time through the end, just kind of get a picture of the world and why we're here as as Christians. And then we're going to step back into the text This is almost like a mini version of what's going on in the world and where we fit in with it. Okay, it starts off in verse 21 of chapter 19. Now, after these events, remember what the events were, okay? Especially following the verse above, the world, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily, okay? He's in Ephesus, a very God-forsaken place to be. Let me see if I can't quit my S's from whistling. Um, It was filled with uh, the occult. Satan had a handle on them. Um, so much so that people, everyone was doing it seemed like because when they all repented and confessed their sins and came with these, this book burning, people were doing it coming and, and out that you never even knew that they were doing it. And they were coming and they were, um, burning their books and confessing their, their, turning their lives over to Christ and everything. And it was like the whole city. And then Paul sets up a Christian school there. Um, and it, this church became a very powerful church in Ephesus. So after these things happened, and after the word of the Lord was continuing to increase and prevail mightily, it gained, it had greater strength and influence than anything else, Satan's really ticked off. He's not going to give up very easily, okay? So after these things, Paul resolved... That seems like there's a lot of tension in that. Resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Acacia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must see Rome. His whole goal is to go to Rome. So it sounded like maybe there was a little bit of a grabbling with God on, before you go to Rome, you got to go do this first, Paul. I need you to go do this first. So he was guided by the Spirit, yielded to the Spirit, and he's going to go through Macedonia and Acacia down to Jerusalem and then to Rome. Okay. So why does he need to go down through Jerusalem? We need to pull in other scriptures to help us understand this. He was collecting from the different churches and delivering a fund 
from all these other churches to go and help the church in Jerusalem. It was an effort of unity. We're all one church. Remember, he was crossing barriers with Gentiles and, and, and Jews and, and continents and everything, and ethnic barriers were coming down, and he was pulling it all in. So by going to all these other churches and collecting a fund, he was going to deliver it to the church in Jerusalem that was needing help. How do we know this? Well, Romans fifteen twenty five. Paul writes about this. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I am no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, to Rome, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Acacia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings that they ought to share in their material blessings also. So he's going, and it's a part of unifying the church, letting the the original church of the Jews down there realize that these people were all one body of Christ and were sharing. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting time when I come. So he wants them to collect it ahead of time. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Okay? So they were in the habit of weekly uh, collecting money for the church in Jerusalem. So, but he must see Rome. That is his goal. That's what he wants to do. His passion to visit these people was incredible. Um, Romans 1.8 gives us a little bit of a picture of that. Chapter 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed to all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may mutually become encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine, as I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. His longing was to go to Rome. His passion was there. So he sends off Timothy and Eratus on ahead to Macedonia, and he, um, he goes on his journey. Now, Paul remained in Ephesus for some time. Um, first, back to 1 Corinthians 16.8. <clears throat> he says, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Okay. 
This gives us a little bit of a clue what's happening here. A wide door has been opened to him. He's going to hang out in Ephesus for a while. Maybe the school was happening there. Wide door of being effective in this town that was just inundated by Satanists and culture and just the whole pagan world. But there's many adversaries that are coming up, all right? So that's what's happening there. And these adversaries are soon going to make themselves known. As Christians um, become serious about their faith, these Ephesian Christians, as they become more serious about their faith and start living it out, it's going to impact society. It's going to affect how we spend our time. It's going to affect how we spend our money, isn't it? As we take our faith seriously. It's a lifestyle change. We see fruit in people's lives, okay? And when this starts to happen to God's people, as they start to change and become more Christ-like and quit doing the other bad habits and things or the frivolous things they would spend their money on or whatever, it's going to have a rippling effect into the culture around them. It shakes things up, doesn't it? And we see this throughout history. There's many instances of history One that um, comes to mind is when the Salvation Army was started back in the 1890s. Salvation Army was started in London for Christians were taking a stance against all the drunkenness and the alcoholism that was happening in London. Bars and pubs and all that kind of stuff was all over, drunkens. And so they became a group of Christians that would kind of march the streets. I mean, their tactics were kind of a little pushy, but they would march the streets and sing songs and stand in front of the entrance to the pubs and stuff like that and, and witnessing the people. And they were starting to make an impact, but they also caused something to rise up in opposition called the Skeleton Army. Any of you familiar with that in history? The Skeleton Army who were a bunch of pub owners and and selling alcohol and stuff like that. They didn't like it, and there was a battle. They became, they would do things, they would mock them, they would, you know, it was not a good thing. Um, So, throughout history, we have this kind of stuff that goes on. And even in our own lives, just personally, in the private sector of our own lives, when we make a change for Christ and we decide we're not going to go do that with our friends that we used to do that with or something like that, there's kickback on that, isn't there? oh, we don't want to invite them because they're not going to be any fun if they come, right? <laughs> they really don't know what true fun is, do they? Do they, Louise? They really don't know what having a good time is all about. Um, so this is what was happening in Ephesus. The adversity was starting to show up, okay? So it also tells us that Paul's work in Ephesus was very, very effective, okay? He wasn't going around saying, the pagans are bad or you shouldn't worship this way. He was not preaching against that kind of... He was just preaching the gospel, saying that this is the one true God. He wasn't taking protests out in front of the temple or anything like that. He was just living his life as a Christian and preaching the gospel. He was pro-Jesus. He was not anti-everything else. And maybe we can learn a lesson from this, right? To be more pro-Jesus... Unless you shouldn't be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that and you shouldn't just kind of lead by example instead. He made a huge impact. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit 
as Christians lived out the message, they let the power of the Spirit and their changed lives confront and push push out the old ways of life. Okay, so this is what's going on here. So, one of these adversaries that rear their ugly head is named Demetrius. And we see in verse 23, about this time, there arose no little disturbance. I love the way Luke says that. It wasn't a little, no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made shrines of Artemis, which is Diana, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Um, so he was a businessman. He mined silver or whatever, and then he would make these idols, and he would sell it to the little shops or whatever, or people would buy the silver, and they would make their own things. Anyways, he had a major business livelihood was in the tied to the worship of Artemis. Um, the temple of Artemis, as the Romans called her Diana, the temple of Diana, was one of the seven wonders of the world. Did you know that? One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There was 127 pillars, each 60 feet high, pillars all the way around this place, 60 feet high, decorated with great sculptures, okay? Some uh, writings even reflect on out of all the wonders that there were, the gardens and all that kind of stuff, there was nothing that compared to the Temple of Diana. I guess it was a magnificent thing with marble and gold and just, just, it just stood huge and you came upon it like coming out on the racetrack. It still amazes me when I come up on the racetrack. It's like, whoa, there it is, you know, this beautiful thing. And when the sun would hit it and everything like that. And Ephesus was known for this. People would come from all over the, the area to worship her. There were feasts that they would do annually and stuff. This was big, big business, this temple in Artemis, okay? Could have started from this black meteor that fell from the sky and hit in that area. And then, like everything else, it's like, oh, it's shaped like Diana. Who knows? I mean, people have imaginations. Um, But history says that the meteorite hit, and it was like shaped like this goddess Diana, the goddess of fertility, and they started to worship all this. That's probably how it got started. 33 shrines to Artemis throughout the whole Roman Empire. So you didn't have to just go there to Ephesus, but you could go any place, and it was tied into um, Artemis, Diana, okay? It was probably the most popular cult of the times. Now, this makes sense to us now to realize how Satan had such a stronghold in this area, isn't it, because of this Diana worship happening there. Because anytime Satan can get us distracted and worshiping something else, it takes us away from the one true God who we're supposed to worship. So, Demetrius wasn't wrong when he was saying that he was having a problem. He looked at his income, the spreadsheet from last year, and then Paul's been here this long and kind of went down some more. Now Paul's been here and And what's going on? The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So as that started to happen, all this idol worship stuff and all the paraphernalia that goes with it was diminishing. And it was starting to hurt him in the the money pocket there. So 
purely financial on his end. He had no interest in the lost souls that were being saved through the teaching of Paul and hearing the gospel. So we got a perfect storm set up. As the word of God increased, and as the satanic activity started to decrease, Satan's going to ruffle his feathers down there. And Satan stirs up human agents to start opposing the gospel all the time. Our battle isn't against flesh and blood. We've got to remember this. Battle isn't against flesh and blood. Battle isn't against Demetrius. Battle is against principalities. Battle is against the arguments that set themselves up against the word of God. The battle is against logic and truth. Okay? So Satan, you know, and people who aren't saved are easy targets for Satan. So he gets in there and he starts stirring the pot with that, okay? Um, And we know, standing on this side of history now, we can see that Satan lost that battle there in, in Ephesus because the temple was destroyed in 401 A.D., It had been attempted to be rebuilt a couple different times. Then it kind of disappeared from history because the earth has a way of swallowing things up. And it was discovered in 1869, this great temple of Artemis. And the main altar was unearthed in 1965. So for centuries, it was kind of erased But at this time in history, when Paul is there, it is the biggest satanic focus of the region in Rome, okay? And it was being (laughs) challenged and and losing its importance because of one man, Paul, right? As we change, as we become sanctified and become more Christ-like, the world around us should be affected by it. We should, because if the world around us isn't affected, or if the world around us don't know we're a Christian, then we have a problem. So the riot, the riot builds momentum, the crowd is whipped into a frenzy, and the people start becoming angry. Verse 28 says... Let me go to verse 26. He says, Demetrius says, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods at all. This Paul, this one man persuaded and turned away. That's what he does. He goes into a town and he persuades, doesn't he? He lays out the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens people's eyes and helps them understand. But it was Paul's work that the Spirit was working through. And so we see here in verse 28 then. um, When they heard this, when Demetrius starts saying stuff like that, you know, our trade of ours is going to be uh, destroyed, not just our trade, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed of her magnificence. We know this happened, but they're worried about it happening. So when the people heard all this stuff in verse 28, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They became enraged. They became angry. The crowd was getting 
whipped out of hand with their fury. And when anger starts to build and it runs rampant, then we have violence takes over. It's just a natural outcome. You can be anger. Anger isn't a bad thing. God gets angry. We should be angry at injustices. But when anger gets out of control, we can sin in our anger. Be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Keep it under control. When it's not under control, violence and hate takes over. And you're not even thinking anymore, as we're going to find out. Okay? They were inflamed by Demetrius' speech, and they surged into the streets, invoking the name of their goddess. So here they go. You know what? How do these things happen? How do they happen? How do they happen in the world today? How come are all those people angry? No. I mean, all those people are angry, but it's not at the cause sometimes that they connect their little wagon to, right? Someone gets them riled up, and the anger that they have inside of them from whatever is it, it then it comes, oh, this is an outlet now to tie my wagon to this cause that I can now release some of this anger that's in me that I'm so ticked off at everything else in my life. And there's a lot of angry people out there. So he's collecting all these people and they're in a, in a, in getting crazy and enraged. And then there starts to get what happens next. Verse 29. So the city was filled with confusion. Confusion, you got a bunch of people out there out of control, they're angry, they're violent, and now it's like fear starts coming. I mean, it's, there, there's confusion. What's going on? Things are happening fast. These are Satan's tactics. This is how he operates. This isn't how God operates. God's the opposite of this. So they get chaos and disorder. They grab some of Paul's friends, and the crowd is flowing into the theater. Oh, we see this all the time. You're pushed in. It's like, you know, the mob is, and you're getting caught. They get caught up in all this, and they're moving into this theater, this mob, and they're headed toward the theater. Who was directing them? Satan, I'm sure. Just getting them going. And they pour into the theater. This mob is in hysterics, okay? The theater is a huge place, and they go there. This is kind of like the assembly place where people go. It says they were dragged into the theater, and in verse 37, Now some cried out with one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Are we using our intellect here? No. (laughs) Satan doesn't want us to use our intellect. He doesn't want us to think. He wants us just to be spoon-fed and kind of go along with whatever you hear on CNN. Oops, I'm sorry I said that. (laughs) No, I'm not. (laughs) I'll have Ken edit it. Um, We have got to be thinking people. We've got to be rational people. We just don't get caught up in the frenzy of something because everybody around us is doing it. Um, We all want to be accepted. We all want to be a part of something. But what we connect up with can be very harmful. So they're moved in there. They've got his friends in there. And Paul is going (laughs) to, good old Paul, he's bold, right? He's going to take them on. And he tries to go in there and they stop him. 
The Azaraks are a group of people who are very noble families, very wealthy families in that area. And apparently Paul had befriended them and they were telling him, no, Paul, you really need to stay away from there. They did not want him to needlessly risk his life for something, okay? It would have been utterly foolish for him to go into that kind of a friendship. I mean, you know, it wasn't his time, so God would have protected him, but God also protected him by having these friends tell him not to go in there, right? Okay. We also know the crowd's angry, the crowd's confused. We also know the crowd is very closed-minded. The crowd is very closed-minded because Alexandria, a Jew... They try to get him to, to talk to the crowd and stuff, and he's up there, and he's motioning them with his hands to kind of, you know, whatever. Once they realize he's a Jew, they're not going to listen to him, and so they just keep it up again. They just keep going with the screaming. The mob drowned him out, and they kept screaming, Great is Aramaeus of Ephesians! Great is Aramaeus of Ephesians! Great is Aramaeus! It was a rhythmic, hypnotic overwhelming loud noise in the theater, which is built for acoustics, seats 25,000. It was a daunting experience. Two hours. Two hours. These people are in there yelling at the top of their lungs, motivated by evil, pushing them forward, and anger just screaming this stuff screaming to a fictitious piece of rock that fell from the earth that they've turned into a god. I mean, it's foolishness, isn't it? The sound must have been deafening. It must have been chilling because of what was behind it. And this is not a surprise based on what we know about Ephesians before Paul got there. The occult was, it had a foothold in this place. We think sometimes that if enough people believe something, then it's true. Is that a true statement? If enough people believe something, is, does it make it true? I want a thumbs down from everybody. <laughs> there we go. Okay. If it says it in this book, is it true? Then a thumbs up. <laughs> most people don't believe this book. Therefore, most people are not going to believe the truth. There's something that's kind of come to our attention today, and of course psychology puts a name on it, sells books on it, but it's been around a long time. It's happened here. It's called groupthink. Heard of groupthink? Groupthink. Boy, talk about losing your autonomy in groupthink. Um, we're seeing this promoted in public schools and in other areas where it's groupthink. This is a definition of groupthink. Groupthink occurs when people's desire to maintain group loyalty becomes more important than making the best choices. People often find it hard to think and act independently in group situations. According to the psychologist Irving Janis, groupthink is a, quote, a de deterioration of mental efficiency, reality testing, and moral judgment that results from in-group pressures. I'm going to re read that for you again. 
It's a Wikipedia. I don't like Wikipedia, but this one I read it and it was okay. So don't always go with Wikipedia. <laughs> okay. Groupthink occurs when people's desire to maintain group loyalty becomes more important than making the best choices. People often find it hard to think and act independently in group situations. According to psychologist Irving Janis, groupthink is, quote, a deterioration of mental efficiency, reality testing, and moral judgment that results from in-group pressures. It's a good definition. Happens today all the time, right under our noses. Popular opinion does not make something true. And it leaves Christians many times as the odd man out. It really does. You know, just, I don't know, you look what's happening across the nation in our public school systems and what's going on there. Um, There are far and few teachers that are really solid and good. They're kind of getting molded into groupthink. So, that's not the only place it happens, though. It's interesting also, as I was studying this, to realize the power of the spoken word. Mm -hmm. Saying the same thing over and over and over again. It's almost like a hypnotic uh, mind control... um, because that's how we learn repetition, right? You want to learn a memory verse, it's repetition. If they were saying John 3.16 over and over and again, that would have been a lot better thing to do. But the power of the spoken word, it's an attempt to brainwash with the repetitiveness. Knowing that, when we look at when God was uniting the church and he had those, um, the gift of the spirit being speaking in, foreign, in the unknown languages, it was words. It was the spoken word he used. He, why didn't he use a, a gift like um, hospitality or something, right? Or a gift of, of teaching or, or healing or something to have their unifying group. But he used the gift of speaking in the unknown languages there. Because it's powerful and because the word is going to be spread through what? Our words. So when Satan gets a a theater full of a bunch of crazy people screaming and glorifying this rock, he knows it's powerful. Okay? I'm using my voice and I'm speaking words up here. And it's a powerful thing, isn't it? And I take this very seriously, what comes out of our mouth. Do you know that we will be judged for every word that comes out of our mouth? Let that sink in. And then he'll wipe away all of our tears for all the times we messed up and send us on our way. Okay. And the day will come where every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. So God gets the final say, doesn't he? As we change, as we take our Christianity more seriously, as we become sanctified and become more like Christ, the world around us should be affected. Our language should change. It should clean up. All right, let's finish this off here. So, we got a loud, and we know that the Romans are paying attention to this. Okay. Somehow, 
the riots are calmed. We know how. God calms the riots. It could have had a disastrous thing. If God had pulled out of there, pulled back, loosened his, his grip on it, you know, it could have been a horrific thing for Paul and all those Christians at, at that church that was new in, in Ephesus and everything. It would have been completely destroyed. That would have been Satan's plan. But we know God's hands are there holding back evil. That's how he works. Sometimes he's out here like this, and sometimes he lets it get a little bit closer. But he's always there. The sovereignty of God is always there. So God, when he wants the crowd to be quiet, guess what? The crowd's going to be quiet, isn't it? So he uses the town clerk, who's like the mayor, the liaison between the people and the Roman authorities. And this town clerk knew that the Romans would hold him responsible for what's going on. Okay? So he gets up there, the town clerk, and he's quieting the crowd. Or, you know, God's spirit is quieting the crowd. And he starts to talk to them. And he's using this logic with them. First of all, in verse 35, he tells them that they had nothing to be afraid of. What are you doing? You have nothing to fear because this great city of Ephesus' reputation was safe. Nothing was going to destroy the reputation of Ephesus from being known in the world of the great temple Artemis that's going to come here. They all know how great it is, and one man named Paul isn't going to destroy our reputation. So just chill, everybody. It's Christianity is no threat to the great temple of Artemis. That's what he's telling them. We know he's wrong because today there's no one who worships Artemis. How many people worship Jesus Christ? There you go. So he's telling them this. And then he looks at Demetrius and his uh, fellow craftsmen And he criticizes them, telling them that they should have followed the due process of law. Because Rome was under an iron fist on these cities. Rome, in the empire, they ruled it. So all these little groups of people, the little plebeians that, you know, were hanging around, the lowlifes, you know, the cultural divide there, social divide, all had to be quiet, Just don't ruffle any feathers. And if the Romans came in and investigated what was happening here, Demetrius tells them that they would not have any way to defend what they're doing because these, you know, Paul hasn't done anything wrong. So you guys need to just let this go. We know, we know, that God allowed Satan to stir up the people. And we know God used the town clerk to calm them down. And we know that Satan just likes to make a lot of noise. And we know that Satan likes to use fear tactics. And he still does today. He's using fear tactics to control us. That's all I'm going to say on that one. The Ephesians church weathered this storm and many other storms of persecution. And it went on to play a dominant role, predominant role in the church history for several 
centuries. So the next hundreds of years, the the church in Ephesus was a powerful church. Remember it's mentioned the first church in Revelation 2, um, when John is listing the, the letters, writing the letters to the churches, seven of them, the first one's Ephesians. And he tells the church in Ephesians that God knows them for their toil and their patient endurance. He recognizes that they had not grown weary. He recognized their love for the truth and holding on to the truth. But he had this against them. They abandoned the love they first had. So he calls them to repent and to get back on track. Focus on what's important. And we can have this message to our churches today, our institutional churches that house the real church. It's like get focused on what's important. Don't lose the love of we're serving Jesus Christ. Don't get caught up in other things. What's important is serving Jesus. Can you see the sovereignty of God's hand in this chapter 19 now? Can you see how he held stuff back and he allowed it to kind of get out of hand and he's doing, and he continues to do this through history. He's doing this today, right now for us. God is sovereign. He's in control. He had told Paul that he would take care of him. Remember back in chapter 18, Verse 9 and 10, when Paul was in Corinth, what does God tell him in a vision? Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you. That's the thing. They can't, you know, they got a bill on the floor now that's trying to get uh, praying in the name of Jesus off the floor, which has been there for, what, since the capital, since we, you know, whenever. They don't want us to say Jesus anymore in our capital. Don't be afraid. Keep speaking. Keep, don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many people in this city who are my people. God's saying he's going to take care of Paul. Did God take care of Paul? Yes. We know at the end of the book here that Paul, you know, you know lives a lo- good long life in a jail and was able to minister and write letters and everything there. Okay, so this is okay. God's got him. God's got plans for Paul, and nothing's going to stop it. God's got plans for us, and nothing's going to stop us until it's time to go and see him. And until then, we keep speaking. God tells us he's going to take care of us. Look at John 17. What does Jesus pray about there? He prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prayed for us. And what does he pray for us about? He prays that we're not going to be taken out of the world, but we will be kept from the evil one. Now, that means that there's going to be trials and tribulations, but there's no way Satan's going to snatch us out of his hand. Okay? We know from this book what kind of protection God has. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. That means abiding there. That means mentally being with Christ all the time. We'll abide in the shadow of the Almighty. What does that mean? We're standing in his shadow, which means he's right there, isn't he? I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence, from the deadly AIDS, from the deadly whatever, coronavirus, I don't care, from whatever. He will cover you with his pinions 
His wings and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. And you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Boy, if that isn't written for today. This pestilence that's in the darkness, you've got all this stuff going on. This stuff's been going on a long time. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you until it's time for you to go home. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. If you don't make the Lord your dwelling place, you're going to be filled with fear and you're going to be up at night worrying about this stuff. But when we make the Lord our dwelling place, when we live in him and acknowledge he's taking care of us, the most high who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up. That'd be a cool thing to see, wouldn't it? Least you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder and the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. And here's the key. Verse 14 is the key. Because he holds, because he holds fast to me in love. When we hold fast to God in love, when we abide with him and when we hold on to him because we know he loves us and we love him because he's taking care of us because we belong to him, he says that I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. And when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. What a great promise that is. That is for us when we hold fast to him in love. When we step out of that and we don't think about that and we start worrying and we start looking at all the stuff going on in the world, yeah, we're going to get anxious. We're not holding fast to God in love at that point, are we? We're not abiding mentally in who he is. Now, nothing's going to snatch us out of our hand. I'm talking about a mindset here. Are you following me with that? All right. We're not promised a picnic. One last verse here. We're not promised a picnic. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God's spirit indwells us. We're clay. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, mm -hmm, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, mm -hmm, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may always be manifested in our bodies, always ready to die. How many Christians do you know that are so afraid of getting a virus and dying that it's consumed them? Satan has got them. Be ready to die. Hey, listen, if you hear I'm in the hospital, do not resuscitate. And if I end up in the hospital, I probably will die. <laughs> not going there either. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus's sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is in you. 
We are fearless. We're not desperately clinging to anything, even life itself. We are fearless. We only cling to him, holding fast to him in love. And when we do that, he can fully use us. And when we do that, and when he fully uses us, guess what, ladies? We can turn the world upside down, can't we? We can turn it upside down. And as we change like that, the world around us is going to be affected. So let's thank God. Really, thank you, Jesus. What great promises you have. Forgive us for our fears. Forgive us for our doubts. Forgive us for our timidity. Embolden us the strength of your power, of your spirit, to really let our light shine for you. May you be glorified. Amen.